from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. Teresa Rebeck has written a lot for TV and movies. And she's published three novels. But she is best known as a playwright, 30 full-length plays and counting. And her latest one, Bernhardt Hamlet, just opened in New York, her fourth play to be staged on Broadway. Teresa Rebeck, welcome to Studio 360. Thank you. So this play is about the great actress of the second half and of the 19th century and the early 20th century, uh, Sarah Bernhardt, played by the remarkable, incandescent Janet McTeer. And the central story is about her insistence at the height of her career in 1897? Yes. That she wanted to play Hamlet. Yes. As a middle-aged woman on the stage, and everybody is skeptical of that idea. Uh, And she wants the play rewritten to strip out the poetry. Well, the I am, certainly. Yeah, the the, the, the ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. Yeah, yeah. And make it more like talk. Yes. And uh, and focus more on, I guess, the action. Yes. She was somebody who was really known to be a sort of electrifying, active presence on stage. And she wanted to play Hamlet that way. Uh, And she felt like the classical stance of the poetry stood in the way of the action, which, in fact, it does. You think? I do. So, Of course I do. I just spent a year working on a play that makes this argument. But I wasn't sure watching the play that you bought her argument because as she says it, it gets laughs. Like, what? How dare you want to uh, adapt Shakespeare in that way? I sort of stand with Sarah on a lot of her arguments. She's quite a brilliant woman, and a lot of the things that she argues in the play I did sort of lift from her own writings. Um, So you have written, uh, according to my research, uh, 25-ish full-length plays? I've actually written 30. Well, okay, 30. Yeah, but it's... Joyce Carol Rebeck? (laughs) No, it's been a long time. Shakespeare wrote 37, trying to catch up. Um, But that's one a year, basically, for your, you know, Mm. plus dozens of episodes for, like, 20 TV shows, a couple of which you created, um, plus movies, plus novels. So truly, I don't know of any other writer of your stature who is more prolific. So why is that? Well, you know, I don't know. I am very fascinated by writing. Uh, I mean, truly fascinated by it in ways that not everyone is. But do you like doing it? I do. Ooh. Like, that's the, that's actually the... Well, there you go. I do like it. I like it. You know, yeah, Dorothy Parker said famously, I hate writing, but I love having written. Which is correct, in no, my view. I love writing. Wow. And I kind of— You're a freak. I am a freak. I, the other thing that happens to me is, you know, I think that a lot of writers uh, have this neurosis around finishing things. I don't know what that is because I don't have it. Right. You know, and I do Like teach. Tony Kushner. I spent an hour in here talking to him about that very subject. The terror of finishing? He can't. Okay. I have the opposite thing. I have the terror of the unfinished. And so once I get to a certain place in a script, my anxiety goes really high until I write the end. And one of the things that I do teach my students when I teach, I don't teach a lot, but is that, you know, you really don't 
have anything until you've got a full draft. And then you can start talking. And that's not to say you should rush through your first draft, but I do feel like, you know, what are you talking about? What are you doing? And you can't actually even begin to answer that question until you make it all the way through a a first draft. Um, So talk, if you can, if you will, about the differences between writing dialogue for or similarities, uh, for all of the different media in which you work, theater and episodic television and film and prose fiction, uh, is it the same muscle? There are, you know, I think a lot about dialogue, obviously. that You know, in one of my novels, uh, I had an editor who said, well, you know, you lean on your dialogue. And I looked at her and I said, why wouldn't I? Yeah, I mean, because I come out of the theater. Right. And dialogue is like action in the theater, like the way a person speaks defines who the character is. Right. And uh, what the person says and is part of what the person does. So I do lean on my dialogue, you know, and then I started thinking about that. And, you know, there are many writers, novelists who I deeply admire, like Ross MacDonald, who completely lean on their right. dialogue. Or and, Elmore Leonard or yeah, whatever. And uh, Beckett completely, right. you know, in, in his fiction. At as the other well end of his, Yes. I do spend a lot of time thinking about dialogue and what dialogue reveals and uh, how sentences come together right. and how dialogue collapses and what happens when uh, people talk on top of each other. Over the years, the sound of my dialogue has changed somewhat. Like this play I just did this summer up at Williamstown. and What's I, the name of that play? It's called Seared. It's about a kitchen of a very small restaurant in Brooklyn. And they're in pretty serious trouble just in terms of being able to survive. And um, they all talk on top of each other relentlessly. Um, but uh, there was a real thrill to me to be able to say to the actors, just Talk on top, do like you have to be completely unprecious. You've all heard these arguments from each other a million times, and if I am not hearing what I need to hear, I will let you know. Yeah. Um. And it was uh, thrilling to listen to the sound of that and how much you actually do hear, and that's completely different from what how the dialogue is working in Bernhard Hamlet. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was a a moment in writing that first draft when I was sort of learning the play. Uh, where I just thought there was something truly startling about how different everybody sounded. And sometimes I don't know where that sound comes from, you know, where the different sounds come from. It's like playing a different piece of music. You to inhabit have, the characters. Yeah, you just yeah. have to let them go. Yeah. So uh, in addition to the, your 30 full-length plays, you have written a bunch of one-act plays. Mm-hmm. Um, do you always know, Oh, this idea is a one act, or or is it 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 reveals itself to be after you've worked on it for a while? You know, I have written one acts that then became full lengths, and that's a very very frightening process to me. I, it's really hard. Um, and after I did it a few times, I think I did it twice, and then said, "Well, I'm never doing that again." Because why? Uh, because a one act is conceived of sort of like a fist, or you know, it's got a little arc to it if you're doing it right. right. And it's like a story you tell. Yes. Yeah. And then if you turn it into a full length, you have to break the one act. You really have to break its structure. And sometimes when things are have reached that place of fulfillment, they don't want to be broken open like that. I think I've done it three times now. And I'm just exhausted even describing it because <laughs> it's, so, <laughs> it's so physically painful. Uh, but you kind of do know uh, this idea and the way I've thought about it, this needs to be this 20-minute thing. Yes, I think so, yes. I usually, when I start a full length, it's with a knowledge. Generally, I try to know the general area and also where I'm going, where it's going to end, and nothing else. 
Really no no vague outline thing in between? A path sketch? Not anymore. Uh, and I think it's because I've written so many that I feel like, you know, my instrument will take care of itself. Y- you do it enough, your technique really tunes up. Yeah. In Bernhard Hamlet, um, the other major character, in fact, is this guy, Edmond Rostand, uh, who was this real-life writer, who was yes. Sir Bernhard's lover, and, and whose most famous work uh, uh, was uh, Cyrano de Bergerac. Yep. Um, you've got this interesting scene where he's talking to her during uh, a rehearsal, and I'd love you to read um, oh. uh, just a bit of him. Okay. I cannot separate what you are and what I am, one from the other anymore. How many times have I watched you, standing out here alone, knowing that it is my words you say, while they are hanging on your lips and your looks, it is my heart beating, it is my will and soul, it is I who have taken years of my life to write our masterpiece, only to disappear into the silence behind you. It's a fascinating passage, and you can, uh, listeners, go to the theater and hear a professional actor. Yeah, here's somebody really good do it. <laughs> deliver it. It's a whole fascinating take. It was one of my favorite moments of the play. And I wonder, do, have you ever had that complicated feeling where, among the things he's whining about, it, uh, seeing your work performed and, and feeling as though that the actor's creative act is kind of eclipsing your work? I, You know, uh, I actually don't think he's whining. I think he's trying to explain to her how how you evaporate. When you spend enough time doing this, away from it, you start to evaporate. And one of the many ways you evaporate is in the theater when you're no longer in the process of rehearsal when it's moving away from you, Like, which is actually what's happening to me right now. It's sort of less and less mine and more its own thing. Sounds like raising a kid. It is. It feels it feels similar. Um, I want to play a clip from your TV show Smash in 2012, um, which was the story of the making of a Broadway musical. We start with Let Me Be Your Star. You start with it. Seriously, I can see it in my head. You don't think it's the act break? No. No, it's like this. The stage is black. She stands alone in a pool of light. She's just Norma Jean. Fading on a girl with a hunger for fame. So th- that was Smash, which you created uh, and ran, and in that case wrote. Um, for one season. Great idea for a show. Uh, beautifully executed. Got good ratings. I got a Golden Globe nomination. People liked it. and mm-hmm. and But then this, ironically, this show about uh, backstage drama uh, became a big backstage drama in which yes. <laughs> you were did. one of the stars. Um, so what happened there? Uh, it's hard to talk about. Because I want to think of a way to talk about it. I've Over the years, I've spent a lot of time thinking about how to talk about it. People remain deeply, deeply curious. Uh, It was extraordinarily painful. And it was um, challenging because there was so much bitterness around uh, the start. You know, it was startling that they fired me. Uh, It's not clear. It was never truly made clear to me. The show fell apart after they fired me. Um, Did that feel kind of good? Um, Après moi? You know... <laughs> um, I can't comment on that, uh, on how that felt. Uh, there was a period of time, which I have written about, where their anger at me, which I felt very um, 
sort of concocted because I really was doing everything that needed to be done and making that show a success. And I was kind to people and uh, a good employee. And so it was startling, it, truly startling to have the rug pulled out from under me like that. And then after that, show business being what it was, um, there was a lot of backstabbing that was going on, you know. So uh, that was very challenging. Yeah. And uh, I do feel like there are plenty of other women this has happened to. It does feel tied into uh, what was sort of accepted behavior around gender. You think? Yeah. And that things that men are praised for, women are shut down for. And that takes its toll, you know, over time. Because, I mean, and and what you were accused, oh, she's dictatorial, she's this. Well, didn't ever stop, didn't make anybody fire Aaron Sorkin, for instance, from his show. Right. Yeah. And also, uh, a lot of times, I felt like I was being penalized for just doing the job. And I thought, I'm the showrunner. This is my job. This is the job description. And, um, Showrunner and creator, which is not always the same person. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and it wasn't like, oh, you're just this playwright stepping into TV and, and not knowing what she's doing. You'd written for television for 20 years. Yeah. I worked on a lot of different television shows. Mm. I trained with Bochco and Milch and John Wells and yeah. David Crane and Marta Kaufman. I, I You know, Dick Wolf, Renee Balsay. You know, I worked, I worked on Law & Order. I worked on a lot of different shows, and I was trained. Yeah. And uh, I know what the job is, and I was qualified. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's all I have to say about that. Um, so as if all your vast oeuvre wasn't uh, impressive enough, plays and movies and TV shows and books, y- you've also got a doctorate from Brandeis University, uh, 1989? I, I went back to graduate school and got a Ph.D. in Victorian literature and right. theater. And now I'm really glad I did it. You know, I'm glad to know the things I know. I'm glad to have spent the time I spent studying Victorian melodrama, studying Victorian theater, studying Dickens, you know. And that was back before melodrama was used almost only pejoratively as it is today. Yeah. You know, it was its own, it was a very popular form of entertainment. Everybody went. I became fascinated by the fact that it was a a culture of theater goers, you know, that those theaters were huge and that also that it was a place that all classes came together to watch these plays. And how was then uh, melodrama different from drama? The score, it was called melodrama because everything was musically scored almost all the way through and it was highly um, expressionistic and gestural. Uh, There was a kind of depletion of psychology and language, which is what people know when they look back or if they find these texts, they think, you know, it doesn't have a naturalistic sound. Sounds like it almost anticipated movies. It was trying to be a movie before movies existed. It was silent movies before silent movies existed. And also, I think you can actually draw a line straight from Victorian melodrama into silent movie and into German expressionism. And uh, there's a kind of epic size to a lot of the stories that I, I find really powerful. And, and it's very story-centric. Right? Yes, yes. And your work is very story-centric. Do you, do you feel like, oh, th- I, have a kin- I feel a kinship with this because I care about story and, you know. Well, there's a lot of theater that's very story-centric. You know, you'd sure. say the same thing about Chekhov or sure, Ibsen. Sure, 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 You know, I think there's a kind of contemporary right now move away from it, which is, there's no question I'm not interested in, in nihilism or fractional. Or, or postmodernism, yeah. what's going on here. I, I don't find that satisfying. Sometimes, I, I mean, I go to see it and I think, well, okay. Um, I certainly am a big fan of Beckett. You know, the musicality and the deep heart are, are things that I respond to. Uh, so it's not like I need a big story 
to be satisfied right. in the theater. Um, but uh, I do believe that action rises out of character and story rises out of action and that those are profound truths um, and that great plays are written on those truths. Uh, and uh, I don't apologize for that. Right. I'll go to my deathbed um, insisting. But there are people who actually criticize your work for being too accessible. Well, I find that mystifying. Do you? I do. Or is it just a general standard issue snobbishness of the 20th century and now 21st century? Well, I think that it's uh, it sounds arrogant toward the audience, which yeah, seems just... which seems contradictory around a form that can't survive without an audience. And I so I've always felt like I do want to invite people in uh, to the theater. I deeply believe we should all be going to the theater. Right. Uh, Teresa Rebeck, it has been uh, a pleasure. Not a surprising pleasure, but surprisingly pleasurable. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Teresa Rebeck's new play, Bernhard Hamlet, is playing on Broadway through November 11th, which is around the same time that her next new play, Downstairs, will open off-Broadway. Coming up... How does one reconcile this strange mist that comes in the room when a famous person walks in? Justine Bateman's unflinching look at fame. Fame is a social construct. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. David Bowie's song, Fame, is kind of an anti-anthem of fame by a young artist who, right then, 1975, was just becoming famous. decades later, in the reality TV, social media, YouTube age, celebrity, or just notoriety, are more completely than ever ends in themselves. These days, especially in America, calling somebody famous for being famous is not much of an insult. One word, Kardashian. But something that hasn't really changed when somebody famous enters almost any situation it's a little weird for everyone. How does one reconcile this strange mist that comes in the room when a famous person walks in with the fact that fame is a social construct? A new book called Fame, The Hijacking of Reality takes a very personal look at what that's like for the well-known person from inside and then outside the reality-altering bubble of show business celebrity. I'm Justine Bateman. I am a writer, director, producer, and now an author. And years ago, I was a very famous actress. I played Mallory Keaton on a show called Family Ties, and it was in the 80s, and I was 16 when that show started. Our next guest plays Mallory Keaton in the new NBC series Family Ties. My next guest has grown into an intelligent and articulate young woman while playing the role of the not-too-bright but very lovable Mallory Keaton. What's it like for you now that um, you're famous and being recognized in the streets? <laughs> famous. Sure, come on. <laughs> oh, it must be nice when people recognize you. I say it's nice when they do and it's nice when they don't. Mm. You know, sometimes it's nice, you know, you got to be nice and because you are public property. 
That gave me the experience uh, from which to begin to write this book about fame and why we seek it and how out of control that seeking has become. Hey, you want to go somewhere with me? I'm talking about emotional time travel. You up for it? I want to show you the inside of something, of fame. The only way to do it is for me to pull you in there with me. So it's me talking. We're going to go in there and I'm going to tell you how it feels. Sometimes I'm talking to you in this book and sometimes I'm talking to someone who took a shit on me in the press or online. I don't want you to take it personally. I'm going to trust you. When I pull you into this emotional tornado, I'm going to trust you to know when I'm talking to you and when I'm talking to not you. To know the difference. To know if I'm talking to a friendly supporter, a person innocently curious about what fame is like, or if I'm talking to a malicious hater from my own memory. Just be in there with me. Let it toss you about. Okay, get in the rowboat and let's go down the river. The name of the book is Fame, the Hijacking of Reality. I'd been thinking for a while about how, how fame had exploded around the year 2000. 39 days, 16 people, one survived. They're the men and women America will be watching for the next three months. Live on this very stage, an as-yet-unknown talent will be launched into superstardom. We've invented this structure, this possibility for people to become famous, but in a way now that, that we just didn't have years ago. It, like when I was quite famous, there wasn't this general desire to become well-known by anyone. It was just like, something that happened to you and you dealt with it and there was the good and the bad but mainly it was just it was trying to keep the coke in the bottle after you've dropped the Mentos in it's unwieldy I wrote it in a very raw emotional almost stream of consciousness manner and not in a rational way but rather this is in real time what's running through your brain and it doesn't make a lot of sense sometimes but this is it there's a framework underneath it but what I really want it to be is this emotional time travel where I pull the reader back into for me 1982 so here I am I'm in it 16 I'm 16 when it starts then I'm in it in the fame didn't see it coming just in it People smile at me, happy to see me, so happy to see me, like a baby or a toddler. Me, being looked at as if I'm the long-awaited child of a couple who thought they couldn't conceive. Looked at as if I can do no wrong. Everything I do, looked at by others with big glassy eyes, smiles that cannot be drawn down with any of my actions. Applauded for basic tasks even. Like a toddler dressing herself, feeding herself, walking, running, scribbling shit on a piece of paper with a crayon and up on the refrigerator with pride. Everybody loving you. You, celebrity. You, newly famous person. Everybody loves you, is proud to throw their arms around you and call you pal. So the book covers the life cycle of fame. The beginning, the love, the hate, 
and then the equilibrium where everyone just knows you're famous, and then the slide where maybe only you notice that the famous is slipping away, and then the descent where everybody notices, and it's like sand through the fingertips, and then the without, and are you ever really without? Are you ever allowed by the public to become somebody for whom fame had never occurred? If you suddenly lose your job, you realize, oh, I didn't realize I had my identity attached to it or my, my ego or my self-esteem or how, I, how my friends see me, all these things, and it will start ripping at you, which is why you see so many sort of shipwrecks. Okay, here's what happened. There were all those other comments, sure. She looks great and all that, but I wanted to know the fucking goddamn truth because, you know, I'm all about that. And if so many people were saying that I looked like a crack whore, then they must be right with me being wrong. I decided that I didn't look right, that I did look terrible, like something gone wrong. I decided that, and I walked around ashamed of my face. That decision riddled my entire body with the belief that to look upon me was to look upon horror that people were choking back the bile when they had to speak to me face to face, that I disgusted them, that they were brave souls to be talking to me and allowing such pleasant looks to remain on their face during the exchange. I began to feel ashamed. Yes. Every time I walked out of the house, every time I sat across from someone at a table, over dinner, coffee, anything, and had a conversation, Every time a waitress would ask if there was anything else she could get me, every time a cashier in a store would hand me back my credit card and bag my purchases and tell me to have a nice day, I felt the gratitude. Thank God I got through another day without somebody fainting from looking at my face. I didn't expect it to work through so many of my issues with with the decrease of fame as it did. And I really wanted to be faithful to the reader and to the process of really putting that down. My fear of that is, is not specific to me. I mean, I think really that's a fear that many people have that goes down to a core fear of being invisible or being ignored or being being erased I am so glad to not have fame now there is a tremendous amount of freedom for me now in not being famous and has been for for years like did it great fine but man I it's not a trip I want to take again Justine Bateman's new book, Fame, The Hijacking of Reality, is just out. Studio 360's Lauren Hansen produced our story. Researchers found hair from one of the founding fathers of the United States tucked away in an old book. The discovery was made at Union College's library in upstate New York. Earlier this year, a lock of George Washington's hair was discovered in an old book, which I loved and which was strange but also kind of familiar because anybody who has spent much time browsing around used bookstores, which I also happen to love, knows that you never know what you might find tucked inside a book or inscribed on a title page or 
jotted in the margins. So we asked listeners, what's the most memorable or inexplicable thing you've ever found in a used book? We got lots of great responses, and here's one of them. This is Jeff Stacy in Washington, D.C. I'm just preparing this uh, voice memo for Studio 360. When I was a grad student in New York, I used to enjoy traveling outside of the city with my girlfriend at the time. And we really sort of fell in love with the Berkshires up in Western Mass. Whether it was summer or winter, we'd go there quite a bit. In 2002, we happened to be in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, a delightful little town there near Lee and Lennox and Stockbridge and Beckett and the others. And we were in Yellow House Books at uh, 252 Main Street. Great little bookstore, you know, classic Berkshire's culture type place. And we were just rummaging around, looking through the shelves, and I discovered a book that really jumped out at me. I was a grad student at the time, working on a PhD in political science and international relations at Columbia. So when I came across a mint paperback copy of David Remnick's landmark book, um, Lenin's Tomb, I snapped it up pretty eagerly and was even more eager when I opened it up and saw the price penciled in was only $8 and had been marked down from 16 So looked around some more. We got in line. And as I was leafing through the book, I was stunned to come across written words on the title page in blue ink that went exactly like this. May 5, 1994, for Saul Bellow, in gratitude for all his books, respectfully, David Remnick. As you can imagine, I went bananas. It was quite a little find there, and obviously the bookstore didn't know about it because it was priced down to $8. So when I let let out sort of a little yelp there in line, several others overheard me tell my girlfriend what I just found, and they moved in close and read the same thing and were just about as giddy as I was. So we had a little scene going there, and real soon after... Uh, one of the managers came out from behind the register to have a look for herself, and she, too, was marveling at this. Then, naturally, myself and everyone else there wanted to know what the price of the book now would be. And they told me they would honor the $8 price. And, well, on my bookshelf, this book is still in mint condition and still sits there with this remarkable dedication on its title page. That was Jeff Stacy, who listens to Studio 360 on WAMU in Washington, D.C. And Zoe Saunders produced our story. Coming up, a hip-hop pirate radio station in New York City in the 90s that had its ups. It got big. You know, we, we got a lot of love. And, and downs. Eventually, when you get too big and you do something illegal. You better watch your step. 
you know, they, they come knocking on your door. The story of WBAD Pirate Radio from the renegades who created it. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. In the mid-90s, the internet was just barely starting to turn into a mass medium. There were no podcasts, and nobody had heard of internet radio. So it was a heyday for FM pirate radio. FM transmitters were pretty cheap and pretty easy to operate. For a few hundred dollars, you could blast your favorite music or conspiracy theories or religious beliefs as far as your little FM signal would carry them. But they call it pirate radio for a reason. The stations operate without licenses from the Federal Communications Commission, which was and is keen to find pirate radio stations and shut them down. So, 1995, Brooklyn. There was this UPS driver named Dave Cintron who liked hip-hop, wanted to be a DJ, and didn't like how the big New York City station, Hot 97, played only major label tunes and sanitized songs because of FCC rules against profanity. Cintron, soon to call himself DJ Cintronics, got his hands on one of those cheap transmitters. And that's where our cat and mouse story about Cintron and another pirate radio pirate, Dren Star, begins. It was a really big, clunky transmitter. It was like all tubes. My name is Dave Cintron, and I go under DJ Cintronics. You know, once I bought that, then I put it up in an apartment that I had over here in Windsor Terrace. We put the antenna up, and then I decided to call it, you know, since we knew we were doing something that was bad, we decided to call it WBAD Radio. You're listening to Bad, bad Radio. Bad Radio. 91.9 FM. WBAD. Genuine sickness. New York. The first time I signed on, just felt great. It was like, wow, you know, I'm on the air. And then I called friends and I said, hey, tune in to 91.9. And they would tune in. They're like, wow, what the hell are you doing? How the hell are you on the radio? And I said, well, I'm going to take this serious. I like this. I'm going to broadcast as long as I can. Yeah, this is Badass Radio. Yo, what's up, Cause? What's up with those radio stations playing love songs all day long? Hey, yo, I never knew love like that before. And I don't want to know love like that no more. I'd rather hear that ill shit that's in trying to be plain. We don't play no commercial, so son, what you saying? Bad radio, pirate station, not creation. Sponsors and censors, we got no relation. Never break up like Jodeci and Devante. Centronics, Mystic, Carlito, Brigante. Sinister cause, D.O.T., Vigilante. If you want to battle, let's make a betting up the ante. We could get ill for real and still go to heaven. Bad radio, Sundays, 5 to 11. It felt good. You're doing something that no one else is doing, and you're doing a good job. Going on the air was the best thing in the world because we, we had all the power. What was that? Yo, 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 yo. Drenstar. We here. We go by the name of Drenstar. I was born and raised in Lower East Side of Manhattan. I've been doing music for over 25 years. Centronics reached out to me because he was already doing the show. He was doing a house music, club music. And when he brought me on board, it was to do the hip-hop show. He never did hip-hop before, so we collaborated on that together, and it really went uh, viral wasn't the word at the time, but yeah, it went viral. 
back in the 90s, you couldn't get your music played anywhere. I saw an opportunity to play some of this independent music, the stuff that the radio stations like Hot 97, they wouldn't play. You know, we provided four or five hours of just nonstop raw hip-hop that people were just fiending for at the time. Well, they didn't have to buy a mixtape, and they didn't have to go run around. They could just be wherever they were at, in the park, in the barbershop. We had a lot of barbershops. That's all the talk of the town goes on. You know, that's where we got a lot of love. We were the only ones at that time providing that type of platform for the type of music we were playing. We played all the dirty versions. We would do like a test run. I would be in the car and try to go as far as I can. And, and the signal was nice and crispy. And, you know, we would know what zones we were hitting hard by our callers. Hey, caller, where, where are you calling from? I'm calling from the Flatbush right now. Yo, Papa, man, what's the hottest station, baby? 91.9. This right. I got it right. What's up, man? Where you calling from? From Bushwick. Hello, you on B80 Radio? Yeah. What's up, baby? Yo, wanna give a shout out to the funk niggas. All right, Hold on, my nigga fast, Kate. Where you calling from? The lower. Lower deck. B80 Radio, the yeah, area. It was priceless. Like, going on the ears, it's just priceless, you know. Knowing that what you're doing and speaking into a microphone, knowing that thousands and thousands of people are hearing you and, and supporting you and appreciate what you're doing for the hip-hop community and... It was a great feeling. Every time we did our show, it was nothing but love. What up? Got my nigga, Terrasquardian, Captain Leader, big motherfucking pun in the studio right now, know what I mean? This is why niggas hate us. You know what I'm saying? If they hate us. If they hate us for doing our thing, we'll hate them back. <laughs> It was really Dren who, I gotta say, was out there and pushing, you know? I saw Dren was very aggressive and very ambitious, and, and he really promoted, and that's what I needed. It got big, you know, we, we got a lot of love, and eventually when you get too big and you do something illegal, you know, they, they come knocking on your door. I did know it was illegal, yeah, of course. So... We knew we'll do it at a certain time where we know the FCC's, you know, it's on a Sunday night. In order for them to come out, they gotta really want to get you. Hi, I'm Barbara Nevins-Taylor from the UPN 9i team. Barbara Nevins-Taylor called us while we was on the air one time, and I had a whole phone conversation with her. And she was like, hey, Adrian, how you doing? I'm from Channel and I'm like, oh, here we go. Because, you know, I watch that channel, and I watch what the I-Team does, and I'm like... Every time they get involved in something, they're like, they're shutting you down. Like, they're not going to praise anything you do. Like, damn, man. She started laughing, you know. And I was like, I hope you're not coming from my head. And she goes, no, I'm in awe of what you're doing. I got your contact information from some of these artists. I can't get any radio playing Hot 97, so that's why I want to sit down with you. So, you know, when she came at me like that, I said, all right. They asked me if I was willing to do an interview on the news station. And I told them, no way. There's no I said, they're going to kill us. I said, that's a slap in the face to the FCC. I said, the FCC, they're not bothering us right now. I don't know if they know about us, but we're doing really good. And they said, oh, you know, this is going to help us. We're going to get put on mainstream radio. And I said, I'm not taking that chance. And I told them, no. Bottom line, hells no. I'm not doing it. Yeah, Centronics didn't want to do it because he was always very secretive with the station and with this and with that and he had a job 
he didn't want his employer to find out. You know, he could have lost a job for that. You know, this is all I did. So I didn't care about that. But he begged me, Duran, no, 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 we don't. And I said, you crazy. I'm doing it. Like, this is exposure. Like, we're already on the radio. Now they could put a face to the name. Like, we got to move forward. Like, if you don't want to move forward and you want to keep doing your, your nine to five for the rest of your life, that's cool. But I'm, I'm doing this for the rest of my life. He was like, nah, man, come on. We don't got to do it. And I said, well, you don't got to do it. I'm doing it. One day, Dren told me that he was having a, a bunch of artists coming to his studio. And I said, why so many people? And I had a feeling something was wrong. I said, okay, so jumped in my car, drove to Manhattan. I go up, I knock on his door as a surprise. And guess who I see there? Barbara Nevins Taylor from UPN9. And I said, what are you doing? I told you I didn't want to do this. You're going to kill us. We're doing good. We don't need this. So they were looking at me like I was Debbie the Downer. Like I just ruined everything. Barbara Nevis Taylor goes to me and, you know, what you're doing is a great thing for the hip hop community. And, and I said, look, thank you, you know, but I don't need you to recognize us. We're doing just fine without you, you know. She says, oh my God, you know, why wouldn't you take credit for something you started? Such a wonderful thing. And I said, I'm not interested. As a matter of fact, I didn't want you here. And then one of my guys, he says, just do it. So I said, all right, you know what? I'll do it. But I don't want that camera pointing in my face. Take my silhouette. She started asking me questions. Do you know that what you're doing is illegal? And all kinds of stuff that I just didn't want to answer. I was like, oh, my God, I couldn't believe that she's asking me these questions. I finished the interview. I left, and I told Trendstar and Smooth B, if they aired this, we're done. And he stood quiet. We did the show. I went back to my studio. A week later... And now, tonight's UPN 9 News Rundown. To report from our investigative team, we're about to take you inside the secret world of pirate radio. They are outlaws of the airwaves, willing to risk jail to broadcast their kind of music. I-Team's Barbara Nevins-Taylor is here tonight with the story. Barbara? Brenda, they are the bad boys of radio, and their passion is hip-hop. And to play what they like, they break the law every Sunday night when they blast their music into the burrows. I was sick to my stomach because all this work that I put in to do the station is going to go down the tubes. And I meant what I said because that's a slap in the face to the FCC. They're going to go after us. That's how I felt. And I was sick to my stomach where I couldn't even go to work because I was just like, I can't believe they're doing this. You know, they're actually going to do it. Syntronics, the creator of Bad Radio, doesn't want to be identified, but he allowed the I-Team to visit during a Sunday night broadcast, as long as we don't reveal the location. Now, you're breaking the law. Is that frightening for you? Everybody breaks the law in, in some ways, you know? You know, we're playing music. We're not selling drugs. Creating a legal radio station is expensive. If a New York City radio station were available on a legal frequency, it would cost in the neighborhood of $75 million, according to industry insiders. Instead, BAD uses the frequency shared by stations on Long Island and in New Jersey. And that's why the FCC could make them stop broadcasting. Do you have two separate transmitters, or do you have it? That, I, I really don't want to discuss okay. that. The piece came on. It was a long piece. And then phone calls crazy labels everybody was like now it was like legit now everybody wanted to be on board 
they aired it, and that was it. I shut it down. I said, I'll tell you what. You want to go back on the air? At least wait a month. And I said, if we go on the air, we'll do it from your studio in Manhattan. Okay, and they were like, okay. <laughs> so we went to his apartment building, which is housing projects, public housing. So we did it at night. And we put the antenna up, and I was in heaven because the signal was ridiculous in the Lower East Side. I drove out to Jersey, and I heard it in Jersey. So that was phenomenal. On top of the world. Yeah, 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 91.9. The rap. B.A.B. Radio. Call us up right now. Something here. Beautiful. Powerful. Let's even go piano. You know what I'm saying? Get this shout-out session going on. Represent, baby. I just want to freestyle and shit. It wasn't even a week that we went into this Manhattan location. Not even a week. We get a phone call, and this guy calls. He sounds really official. And he says, hi, where are you guys? Where's the antenna? So he's asking questions. So we said, um, I think it's time to go. <laughs> and we hung up on him. I said, I don't know who that was, but it doesn't sound good, you know? So I believe the next week I called Dren and I told him from over here in Park Slope, I told him to, you know, how to turn the transmitters on. Next thing you know, I get a phone call. And he says, the FCC just got here with the NYPD. They came drawing a live broadcast. I'll never forget it. I heard the knock on the door, and I looked through the peak hole, and there was like 20 people in my hallway. And I was like, oh, shit. It was the FCC with the housing authority, with the cops. Like, it was crazy. It was like a, a big raid, and they just wanted to see everything. Judah Mansback from the FCC, he asked for permission to come in. And he wanted to see, and he told me why he was there. I knew why he was there. He asked me if I knew who he was. I said, yeah, I know who you are. I was on the phone with him. I said, shut it off immediately. Let him in. They're going to ask you for a license. So you tell him you don't have it. Don't let him take any of the equipment, because he has to give you a warning first. So he came in, and he said, where's DJ Centronics? And he says, he's not here. <laughs> the NYPD was fascinated. Not more than anything. They were like, wow, this is cool. But the uh, FCC was like, this is not cool, you know. <laughs> so, you know, after that, that was it. I shut it down. I went back on, but I moved. I started running around. Finally took my transmitter back. And then he went to try to do his own thing, which didn't do so well. I mean, he didn't do it out of his apartment. He did it somewhere else. You know, he did it his way, and at first he was trying to call it bad radio, and I said, no, it doesn't work that way, Trent. i tell you a funny story. After we got busted, right? <laughs> I'm bad. This is, this is, I was a teenager, so, you know, this is, this is the things we did. I was on Avenue D, East 10th Street and Avenue D. One of my friends had an apartment there. It was a pretty high building, and we had the antenna on his balcony. And I go downstairs to the store, and I'm crossing the street, and I see the Ford Explorer. I see a guy put up a newspaper real fast. And I say, oh, shit, look at this motherfucker right here. 
So, you know, naturally I'm nervous. I'm like, fuck, he found us again. This guy is crazy. So I go upstairs and I tell my friends, I'm like, yo, we got to shut this shit down. The FCC dude is downstairs. And he had an Explorer. I forgot the color, whether it was blue or green. But on the passenger seat, he had a big, I don't know what it was. It was like a big square, a big black square. But I went upstairs and to buy some time, I called the cops on him and said that there's a guy selling guns in front of 10th Street and Avenue D. And he has a whole crate of guns in his front passenger seat of his vehicle. And I put that number one call and about 20 cop cars came. They Guns drawn out. They pulled out the guns on him. That gave us time, you know, shut everything down and take it and just run. Yeah, after I did that, I never went back on again. I stopped. I said, I'm not getting jammed up with this. That arrow was over for me. That was Dren Star, along with Dave Cintron, a.k.a. DJ Cintronics, who were on pirate radio station WBAD in New York City between 1995 and 1998. And after that three-year stint at WBAD, Dave Cintron went mainstream, DJing for Sirius Satellite Radio. But he still works for UPS, where he's a union rep and creator of Local 804 Radio. Dren Star opened a recording studio named, appropriately, Pirate Recordings, and worked as a tour manager for several artists, including Ghostface Killa. That story was produced by David Gorin. A version of it appeared earlier on Lost Notes, which is an excellent podcast from KCRW in Los Angeles, as you can hear for yourself at kcrw.com. And that's it for this episode of Studio 360. But before I go, I do want to remind you to follow this show on Twitter, where you can find us at Studio 360 Show. I'm at KB Anderson. That's Anderson with an E. And please tweet at us. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International. The signal was nice and crispy. In association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is... Sandra lopez Monsalve. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. The first time I signed on, just felt great. It was like, wow, you know, I'm on the air. And then I called friends with tune in. They're like, wow, what the hell are you doing? How the hell are you on the radio? Thank you very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. Over a 60-year career, Harlan Ellison wrote countless sci-fi and fantasy short stories, novels, TV shows, comic books, movies, a huge output. If I were a plumber and you said, how many toilets have you fixed? And I said 10,000, you wouldn't say, boy, what a prolific plumber. What the hell else am I supposed to do? I'm a writer. The late Harlan Ellison, next time on Studio 360.